Welcome to a frank conversation with Nick Maguire. Um, Nick is somebody that's been known to me and downtown in business for about eight or nine years now. We came across one another whilst he was in Manchester creating a huge influential brand around his personality uh, and Mr. Deansgate. He's gone on to uh, develop a number of business opportunities over that period of time. Uh, and we're going to talk to him about um, what got him to the position of Mr. Deansgate. So prior to that, what his career looked like, what his journey has been. Uh, and then more importantly, perhaps, um, what he's up to today. So welcome, Nick. Well, thanks for having me, Frank. It's great to see you. So, so let's just sort of rewind and go back to what's influenced the influencer. What were the sort of things that you know you did in your early years that created, as I say, was a pretty big phenomenon by the time we got <laughs> to sort of 2011, 12, 13, that period of time yeah. when, as I say, I met you. So what had happened up to that point in your life? Well, it was less exciting, that's for sure. <laughs> and I, I kind of uh, snaked my career through both uh, technology and I suppose digital marketing, even though they were quite far apart because the internet was a thing over there and marketing was a thing quite the opposite. But my career sort of traversed both of those really. So coming up to the time you met me, I, I'd uh, done a very successful stint down at Cisco Systems. Uh, we were very much building out the internet infrastructure and I did very well for myself through that whole dot-com bubble. Mm. And then um, I moved out of corporate life and moved into the sort of more digital marketing entrepreneur stuff. We were creating somewhere between technology and marketing startups and different things. But my journey was, uh, was colourful. Uh, throughout that time, I was also a, a church pastor, as I think you remember. So I was leading a church congregation and I was very much into that. And then in my sort of early 30s, I questioned what was going on and the last 10 or 13 years of being a church pastor suddenly were quite undone. And that led me to in the break of my marriage. It kind of got me into a, a whole different mindset. And I was, I suppose, after all the certainty of church and there was a God and there was a big career, suddenly I was left in a bit of like, what's life all about and what the hell have I been doing? So I, you could call that a midlife crisis. And I, I ended up working for a great agency in Manchester city centre. They were in, um, I was in Hale and they were based, actually they were based down in um, Salford Keys, down at Media City. And maybe, oh, I was going to say, I came to be losing my driving licence. Mm. So far too, driving like an idiot. And I was up to 12 points. And thank you, Mr. Loophole, actually. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> uh, got me out of it. But before that actually happened, I thought, you know what, I might lose my car here through my own idiocy. Um, I better move into Manchester city centre in case I have to get the tram. Mm. Hale's too far away. And so by accident, about eight or nine years ago, I landed in a penthouse at the top of, uh, just over Dean's Gate. And, um, and I was a bit nervous because I'd never, I, I was actually a quiet boy from Southport, you know, a church pastor, you know, a, a reasonable individual who's left a very sheltered life. And suddenly I'm in this city that is incredible, that's exploding. The hospitality sector is exploding. And, and, and that's kind of where the whole thing started. 
And I didn't just sort of turn up and go, hi, I'm Mr. Dean's game. Mm. It was quite the opposite. I didn't know how to use Twitter. Mm. I was all right everywhere else, but Twitter, I'd never kind of got it. And so my friends at the, uh, at the agency said, oh, you should call yourself something memorable. Mm. And I thought, well, I can't call myself Mr. Manchester because there's a legend already called Mr. <laughs> yeah. Manchester. So as a joke, I was going to call myself Mr. M602 or whatever, you know, mm. M62. Yeah. Too clever. So I just call myself Mr. Deansgate. That was my Twitter handle. Yes. And the rest is history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was, I mean, a couple of things that you've said there that, that I just want to dig into a little. Um, because the religious thing mm. always interests me. Um, I think just to play safe, I'm an agnostic. I'll describe myself as that. You know, brought up as a Catholic, very quickly fell out with religion, as, as you should if you've got half a brain as a Roman Catholic, in my opinion. Sorry to the Catholics listening. <laughs> um, but when people say to me they were engaged with the church in the way in which you clearly were, in a very serious way, yep. and then you've fallen out of love with it for whatever reason, you know, yep. you know how does that sort of, first of all, come about, but secondly, then impact on you as a personality? So the church thing was unexpected. I wasn't brought up that way. I had a sort of come to the light moment at 17, which was crudely interwoven with the fact that the girlfriend that I was trying to date was a Christian and, and she wouldn't. She wouldn't go any further unless I came to church with her. So I was kind of tricked, tricked at the age of 17 into church. And I did have a, a, what I felt were very real experiences. So it was very experiential. Felt that there was a lot of meaning to it all. And I was very much sucked in. By the time I was 25, I was pastoring a church. I was fluent in theology. It was an, I wasn't um, a Catholic, or I know it's hard to say this in Liverpool, that there may be other sorts of churches, but it wasn't Catholic or Protestant. It was kind of a, an evangelical, Pentecostal type church. And I believed it with all my heart. It seemed to me that the obvious way that the universe and everything had come about was that God had done it. And that was the paradigm that I looked at everything through. But because I believed it so strongly, I also felt that it was open to question, that you should question your faith, you should read around it. And at that time, Derren Brown was doing some clever TV stuff, which was kind of like doing a lot of what I was doing in church, but he was doing it as trickery. Mm. And there was some great work coming out by Richard Dawkins, you know, the, the, the God del delusion, and I was reading those things too. And there was a sort of perfect storm of... Um, disbelief and alternative views that actually caused me around the age of 33 to to come to a conclusion after a lot of soul searching and some um, hypnosis and magic um, to, to realize that, that, that I was a fraud and that's what killed me. Mm. I couldn't do it anymore because I was able to replicate um, by reading Darren Brown stuff and other stuff on mentalism uh, as a tr because I was such so lost, I was able to replicate what I was doing in church in bars with women mm. and uh, and anyone that would talk to me, I could mind read them and I, I would I could have people in tears that I'd just met by doing a psychic reading, inverted commas, on them, which was just stuff I'd read in these books and applied with the same fervor that I'd done it in church. And when I realized I could make people fall over or cry or open up emotionally that I'd just met in a bar and I saw the same response happening in church, but they call that God, I just couldn't do it anymore. Mm. So for me, it was a real... It was a real sad, almost like loss and grief. And, you know, um, it caused everything to be changed in my life. And it was a very difficult time of 
identity and belief. And the challenge, therefore, is that you've believed in this thing for over a decade, um, and that is then dislocated from your life, and you move into a position where, as an individual, you, you're seeing the world through very different eyes. And, and for me, um, the interesting thing is how you've then reacted to that. Was there any periods of the time subsequently where you were tempted to go back to the church? Were there any periods of time where you doubted that that decision that you'd actually taken was the wrong one? Um, and equally, did you not look back and think, wow, I've just wasted but you know there's an awful lot of energy and time being spent on something that that actually now i just think is is a falsehood i think all of those things frank and as eloquently put what what i was dealing with on an emotional level was the loss of status and comfort so i was a church pastor you know a wealthy family man and i'd been you know a pillar of society in that group and I chose to turn my back on it all for no other reason than I didn't think it mattered anymore and I was a fraud. So my personal identity as being somebody in, of social status and of meaning disappeared. And I wasn't ready for that. Mm. And, you know, my, I was very successful when I was younger. I made a lot of money. You know, I'd made my first million by the time I was 30. I wasn't used to not being right or the centre of attention. Mm. And so the... The, the dropping down on the social level was a very difficult thing to deal with emotionally, and I didn't know what was happening. The God stuff was quite easily dealt with. Once I'd come to that position and realized it, it was felt with perhaps three to six months of actual genuine grief. And then it was a case of, I'm just going to die, and I won't even know what will happen afterwards. I'm okay with that. In fact, I'm quite easy about that. And it was amazing how much less crap there was in my life as Christians disappeared. Mm. There was less guilt, there was less judgment. And it was like <laughs> real people outside the church just had nice lives and wanted to go out and have a drink and a good time and get on with their job. And there wasn't this constant pressure and guilt. Mm. So those putting that into a melting pot and throwing me into a city center suddenly had this strange compound um, effect, which was, I was craving some element of social identity that I had lost, but I also had a complete and utter hedonistic viewpoint at that time because why not? Mm. You know, it's all about me now. Yeah. And tie that in with a midlife crisis and suddenly you've got a Mr. Deansgate. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and rock and roll, yeah. you know, and, yeah. that was a, and it was a great period of my life, mm. an incredible period of my life, but it was it was on a basis of slightly being lost uh, with my own personal identity and uh, my status and meaning. I always think it's an interesting phrase, midlife crisis. Yeah. And I think that um, I've probably been through something that those outside looking in would suggest was a midlife crisis. Um, and I actually just think it's um, a situation that arises at a time in your life that perhaps should have arisen Earlier in your life. Yeah. So, you know, in my younger days, I ended up getting married very young, uh, bringing up kids, getting a job, um, being quite responsible, getting into politics. By the time I was 26, I was a, an elected councillor. I was on that sort of slippery slope uh, in that world. 
Um, and then again, circumstances beyond my control to an extent. Um, by the time I'm sort of 40, that all comes crashing down and yeah. I'm going into a different type of world. Yeah. And then I'm socialised in a different way. I'm meeting different people. I'm enjoying myself in ways that I've not endured myself previously. Yeah. Now, the fact that I happen to be 40-something, when that part of my life kicked in, I don't consider that to have been any sort of crisis. No. I just look at that and think that was a fantastic part of my life. The fact that I happened when I was 40-something and not when I was 20-something is just the way the cards fell for me. Well, I completely agree. And it, it, midlife crisis is a, is a phrase I've used. I think a midlife blossoming is, <laughs> is actually sweeter. Um, and I felt that a lot of the drive, certainly when it came to be with my, uh, how would you say this tactfully, my uh, my social encounters and, uh, and, you know, all the great girls and all the great parties, I think a lot of that was me um, looking back at my life in my 20s going, I missed out on all mm. of that. And now I'm nearly 40, I'm going to make up for it. Mm. And actually the very thing that one of the, from an emotional perspective that stopped me from living that life and that brand, there's a couple of commercial decisions, but the, the emotional decision was I, I come off a, a particularly fantastic weekend in Manchester, which just is everything you could imagine, you know, from red carpet treatment to opening into clubs to popularity to late night parties to free drinks flowing you know a great great party and I looked at myself in the mirror and, and thought and I sort of almost congratulating myself going you have lived better than most 20 year olds could have ever lived <laughs> right and I looked at myself and thought yeah I did and it was kind of done mm. and and somehow just some part of me went okay that that fight that was driving you the need to be better and go crazier and go harder than anybody else. That's kind of, I've dealt with that. Mm. It's I've, I've made up for my lost time more than made up for it. Mm. And now I need to look at some other things. And that, that really helped me move my journey forward. Mm. And, and things do move on, don't they? Yeah. You know, you do go through that period where you think, right, I'm, I'm going to have a party now for yeah. however many Eight years. years. Yeah. <laughs> um, and mine was, was not, not that long, but not much less. Either. And, I, and I just think, as I say, you know, it's, it's a well-worn phrase, it's midlife crisis, but I think, you know, society has changed so much now. People live their lives in very, very different ways now. And it's, you know, I think somewhat ironic that a lot of people that would point that finger and use that phrase are the same people who quite rightly will um, call for and demand diversity in other, yeah. other areas of society, you know, whether that be... Uh, LGBT rights, whether that be uh, gender neutral, you know, a whole range of societal issues that we have to deal with in the 21st century, um, that those people would be very sympathetic towards. But then they look at a guy of a certain age and they think, oh, he's having too good a time. He's yeah. having a midlife crisis. Well, fuck off. Yeah. I'm having a great time. <laughs> and I definitely had a great time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it un yeah. unapologetically. Yeah. Um, the only thing I suppose I did slightly differently was I documented it. So when most people have a midlife crisis, <laughs> off they go. But I just called my Mr. Deansgate and posted it on Instagram and Twitter. <laughs> and that had this incredible effect. Whereas I thought the haters would hate. And don't get me wrong, you're always going to get those. 
But what I found was after a couple of years of just posting pictures of me with the Playboy girls or in the club opening or down at the Ivy or whatever it might be, there were a whole generation of people in Manchester, like young guys who were desperate to be me and come and they're getting selfies and pictures and can we come back to your place for a party and I love what you do. And to the point that I actually stopped being able to recognise people and thought I was going slightly mad because people would come up to me going, great, that was great the other day or that was great the other night. And I became popular and well-known, if you like, in a very small area. And, 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 and I wasn't expecting to become, inverted commas, a celebrity for being out and about in Manchester and have people looking up to me going, I wish I had that social confidence. Mm. I wish I had that, much, that, that many connections. Oh, you live a crazy life, don't you? And the story started getting bigger than me. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and like, and I, and I lapped it up, and it basically became this this brand, this Mister Deansgate brand. Which then I I thought, well, I should do something with this mm. and, and commercialize it. So I started Mad About Manchester, which was Manchester's first video magazine. Mm. So rather than just taking pictures of me on yep. night out, Frank, I decided to take a video camera, <laughs> and sometimes that needed a lot of editing. <laughs> um, but that got me great gigs. You know, I, I was asked to launch a, a new a multi-million pound bar and be the face of that and shoot videos for it. I became business personality of the year at the Mancunians yes. Awards, yeah. which was a great night. And, you know, I got asked to go on TV appearances, radio appearances, uh, they come dine with me, wanted to come and get hold of me. And, and it was like all this, it just suddenly got bigger and bigger and bigger mm. because I was basically living my life on social media. I think you'd call it an influencer mm. now. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. And, and and obviously a lot of people monetize that now. Yeah. Um in probably a much smarter way than you did at the time, yeah. because you utilised that influencer status to um, benefit, but not necessarily in terms of your bank balance going up significantly. No, it was a lifestyle thing. And I, I think I told you what I was doing to make sure I, I, I had money. I was doing freelancing and consultancy for digital marketing for businesses. And, in, and then in my daytime, I was doing Mr. Dean's Getting Mad About Manchester, or in my nighttime, I should say, more, more, more to the point. And yeah, I didn't really take it seriously until it got about 50,000, 60,000 followers in a city. And I'm like, I could start charging for this. And we, I did some great stuff. Deliveroo came on board. We ran a promotion. We did tons of, we got tons of success on the back of their launch. And so I did get sort of occasional accounts. Hotels would ask me to shoot videos or club launches. But I did, I got to a crossroads where I had to decide which way to go. And the Mr. Deansgate influencer thing, was fantastic and I was living the life but the the serious part of me the bit that um was the successful side of me the intellectual side of me the professional side of me was feeling a bit of a joke so there was a there was I was getting more and more in the latter years an expectation of me to go out and be crazy and to hold a party but where internally I was kind of tired of that and I was wanting a more uh, professional and, and improving my bank balance and, and looking at the long term and thinking, I need to have some decent assets here, you know, for the long term of my old age. And rock starring it in Deansgate is not a bad thing, but maybe. And so I just got to a point where I made a decision. It was like, I'm going to put Madame Mount Manchester on hold, get out of the city for a while and really focus on on the digital marketing side of things. Yeah. And we'll talk about that a little later on in terms of how that business is going. And I know it's it's proved to be very successful for you, which is great. But before we leave the, the sort of celebrity status behind, 
Um, and again, you and I have, have laughed and joked about this over the years in terms of what makes a celebrity these days. Yeah. Um, and it can be, you know, a very fleeting time in history. And again, I think that, that you sort of said, you know, well, I, I'd sort of done that for a number of years and then I was done with it mm -hmm. and I was, I wanted to move on into other things. But you, before you did that, yeah. And you know what I'm going to say, I can I tell do. by your face. Um, there was uh, an infamous television appearance um, on uh, Take Me Out. So talk us through that. Well, I think that was around the peak of the whole Mr. Deansgate thing. I'd already been on a couple of TV shows and turned a couple down. In fact, I'd been on, asked to go on to first dates. And they got hold of me at the same time as Take Me Out. They contacted me on Facebook. And... I decided to go for take me out. And that means that first dates wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't carry on with the interview process with me. And that was because I didn't actually want to date. Right? <laughs> what I was trying to do was launch Mad About Manchester, get as, as well known as I could. In fact, they asked me to go on to Big Brother. And um, I met with a great friend of mine, Laura Graham, who who's, um, does a lot in PR. And she kind of advised me and sat down with me and said, what are you trying to do here, Nick? Because if you go on Big Brother... This is a whole different sort of side of your personality that's going to come out that you may not like. Whereas if you go on to take me out, it's a family show. It's fun. So I went with her advice and, and I got on to take me out. And I kind of knew from the moment I arrived in the green room, I was stitched up. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. They didn't, they don't stitch you up. They're a they are a great production team. Paddy was a great guy. But the three other guys that were on the show at the same time to me were so good looking, so young. <laughs> One was from King's, you know, the King's stuff like only way is Chelsea or something. The other guy's a parkour, you know, mixed race, like combatant guy, gorgeous looking guy. The other guy's a little cutie guy that works with kids in primary school football and he's all, you know, helping the community. And then there's me, he's just come off a three day bender. You know, my hair's disheveled. I'm like, oh God, what am I doing? And I kind of, it was funny, we had to spend all day practicing. You see, people get the wrong impression to take me out. They think that you already know what's going to be said. You don't. Mm. But what they warn you in the room is, what are people likely to say about you? And so basically the lads sit in the room with some of the production team and we practice taking each other apart, mm. you know. And it's all lighthearted, so it's not too mean. But I knew I was going to get... Bob Geldof stuff or grey hair stuff. But what I found was I had a great talent for helping all the other lads deal with criticism and coming back with some pretty good spin doctory. And the lads used it on the show and all got dates. <laughs> I went on the show, came down that ladder and didn't instantly get a blackout, but pretty soon after I did. And, and to be honest, the, the sense of relief for me, I mean, slight embarrassment that you think, oh no, people are going to go, you got a blackout. So I didn't know how that was going to work. But the relief of not going to Tenerife for two days, not going, not on a date with someone that was probably the same age as my daughter. Um, was kind of overwhelming, really. And Paddy came in at the end of the show and he was gutted for me. I'm like, no, dude, I'm really quite happy about this. It was all about me raising profile. And your VT did that. Would have done even better if they hadn't blacked out me halfway through the VT. But uh, that's done everything I wanted it to do. And Paddy was such a nice guy. He got me on his radio show the day after it went live. And, um, and then they invited me back, actually, on to take me out a couple of years later as one of the most memorable men when they switched over for an anniversary show. And we were behind the, uh, the buzzers and the girls came down the lift. So it was a great experience, Frank, mm. albeit I did get a blackout. Mm. And I will say this, as much as I, I, um, 
I love digital marketing and, you know, I had a lot of influence locally. Nothing can prepare you for being on primetime Saturday TV and being memorable. Mm. I, um, I couldn't go to the shops or walk out without people literally, you know, mobbing me. Mm. All goodwill, by the way. I had no criticism. Load, literally, the, the line would be, I'd have left my lights on for you. <laughs> and, and the day the show went out, it was quite an ego boost, actually. I, I think I had around 600 unsolicited direct messages from ladies that would like to meet up. <laughs> and that's a pretty good ego boost after you've had a blackout. So, yeah, it was, a, it was an, incredible, an incredible experience. Yeah. And I've sort of reflected with you on this and said that for me, because I watched the programme out of interest because of our relationship, obviously, um, and knowing the motivation for you to go on that programme... Uh, you couldn't have scripted that better mm -hmm. because had you got the date, yeah, that would have been, listen, you're a memorable guy. You're a big personality. I'm sure some people would have thought, oh yeah, I'll, I, you know, yeah. Nick Maguire. But actually because of the blackout, it was even more memorable. It was a bit of a story. I think there was a few things in the tabloids as well. Yeah. Um, and of course, as you say, uh, the response and reaction w was pretty positive yeah, for you. Yeah, and I wasn't expecting that. And you, you can never underestimate the English public, can you, at large, and how good people usually are. We get When you're on social media, you tend to go towards the trolls and the haters. and Most people are just nice. Mm. You know, they're good people. And, and, and it was a terrifying experience, and it was a great experience. And I look back, and I looked at such a mess on this show and I'm like oh, what was I doing because I had literally just been partying for three days and um I just took it as a it was a great PR stunt for me but it was just a stunt and I think as much as I had what, what I ended up with the Mr. Deansgate thing was I had sort of popularity and I had privilege that comes with being an influencer like I say invites you know yeah I could be out four or five nights a week with a bar or a club opening or some some brand launch but it wasn't really fulfilling me intellectually and any of my passions or my skill sets around, you know, consultancy. I'd worked, like I said, I'd worked at Cisco, but also in the digital agency. I've been doing digital rollouts for people like Telefonica O2, Chelsea Football Club, um, Nectar Card. So like some really big, meaty pieces of professional work, which just wasn't happening when you're drinking free Prosecco at the launch of a new underwear brand, you know? Mm. So it's kind of like that Z-list uh, local influencer thing just just, just got boring. Mm. And it had sort of overwhelmed you in terms of your capacity well, my liver. for income. <laughs> and, 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 but, you know, in, in all seriousness, you know, you are a professional uh, capacity, a very talented guy. And so as you were saying that, you know, that inevitably leads to you being limited in terms of taking advantage of that skill set that you've got. But before we take a quick break and we come back to what you're doing now, yep. which I think is really interesting and, and, and actually really important, um, we talk flippantly about the taping out experience. You're a very confident guy. You had a particular objective as far as that programme was concerned. And you came out the other end of that with some positive experiences and the result that you wanted. Mm -hmm. Reality TV has been in the news for lots of the wrong reasons. Was there, following that programme, a conversation ever had with you 
and any of the producers of them saying, are you okay with that, Nick? Because there are people who would go on that programme and I've seen others with blackouts who I can't remember. Yeah, I just can't remember. And that's not because I don't know them and I knew you. Mm-hmm. It was just because actually they were not particularly memorable personalities in the way that you are. Mm-hmm. My fear for them would be that would bang the confidence. It could actually impact on the mental health and it could impact on future yeah. um, just experiences that they have in life. So the whole reality TV thing concerns me a little, I have to say. I think that celebrity stuff now that people want to get into, you know, it's that, oh, let's get five minutes of fame on the TV. Was there any aftercare there from, from the television company? So there was. Okay. And, and I think that's, I have to say, they were quite excellent. Mm. There was uh, counsellors on board. They told us how to deal with press. There was there was contact details. There was phone calls that came after the show to make sure we were okay. But I think that's because this is a flagship ITV show. And they were, when I went back for the second um, show, which was the, the anniversary show, they were paranoid about any bad publicity in the press. Because the idea of a guy judging a girl coming down a list is a lot different mm. than, than 20 girls judging one mm. guy. Yeah. Having said that, it was absolutely terrifying. But <laughs> I understood the fact, and the reason why they invited us back as people that have been on the show before, was they wanted people that knew how hard it was to come down that lift mm. to be able to empathise with the girls that were coming down the lift. Now, in fairness, they bought girls that were in the public eye already, so they were kind of used to it. But the idea, I think, of that show ever being the other way around is probably never going to happen yeah. just because of that. Yeah. And to go back to your wider point, I'm in complete agreement with you. One of the most awful parts of living in Manchester was hanging around with Zed Lister celebrities and uh, anyone that's had five minutes of fame on a reality show. And they're usually quite the worst people you would ever meet. In some ways, a bit like politicians, Frank, you know, (laughs) if anyone that desires power is probably the one person you don't want to give power. Anyone that desires fame is probably the one person you don't want to give Mm. fame to. And so you get a lot of people that have had five minutes of fame and then they're just suddenly, you know, well, there was some very, even not just reality shows, even some of the the soap opera stars I knew and, and, you know, even even local people, their their lives could get out of control very quickly. Mm. And what I would say to you was, yeah, there was a terrifying moment and there was deep emotional anxiety before that show went out because as much as they'll give you a duty of care, they've, you've no idea what they're going to put out. Mm-hmm. And so I had no idea how I would come across. I hadn't seen my VT. I didn't know how they would edit me. And the, the anxiety towards that and then the onrush of, you know, literally I had, I had two computers because I was being quite smart. When the, when the show went out, I posted a video, a mock video of myself because I knew I was going to get a blackout and mm. I knew I could get some haters. So I sent out a spoof video that did really well virally. But so I had my computers and as soon as that show went live, it was like NASA, you know, everything was beeping and flashing and notification and direct message. And it was like, it was like meltdown. And to be able to go from hyper anxiety to overwhelming popularity in an instant is quite uh, something you have to be quite emotionally resilient towards. And you, I always, I was think the benefit of being older was I, I kind of knew that all of this was just um, a zeitgeist. Mm. It would go in two months. But for people that believe that they are now special and that that will sustain, they're in for a big shock. Mm. 
And so I, I do think there is a duty of care that the, the producers have to... I mean, obviously we saw that with the, with the show recently um, and, and the guy that committed suicide just after. There has to be some stronger measures around this. And hopefully the days are a little bit numbered on some of the reality shows now because the formats are tired. Fingers crossed. That's Fingers also. crossed. Well, listen, we're going to have a short break and then we'll come back and talk about uh, what you're up to now yep. and uh, how... Mr. Dean's Gate remorphed back into uh, the serious business owner, the entrepreneur, uh, and you know helping a lot of businesses perhaps take advantage of some of your experiences. Great. So, welcome back to a frank conversation with Nick Maguire. Um, we've talked about his time in Manchester, his time as Mr. Deansgate, um, his appearance on Take Me Out uh, and the aftermath. Fascinating story, um, but we want to bring it right up to date. And you've set a new business up, new venture, uh, Social Proof Media. Tell me about that. Well, I mentioned I was doing a lot of freelance work and I never let that go. And it was an, an interesting combination. I, I basically made a decision. Do I carry on doing Mad About Manchester or do I go and take seriously the freelance work that was basically just funding my lifestyle? And I made that decision. And I wanted to have a mission. I wanted to do something more than just be yet another digital marketing company. And so what that vision was, was I... I I was re going down to London, reading the newspaper, looking at um, the usual story around North-South divide and poverty and all these different kinds of things. And, and I thought, well, the real poverty that I see is digital poverty. That is where, not in so much as infrastructure anymore, though, of course, we could still do with a lot more infrastructure, but in knowledge and in um, small to medium businesses predominantly, not leveraging the huge changes that were coming really quickly that could that could really help them with business growth. And I, I think there's a, there's just a, a, an educational element around SMEs that's like a digital poverty because it's moving so quickly. You know, they're still worrying about their email marketing and, and their website being up to date and no one's, over, no one's looking at that stuff anymore. And so I felt there was a real opportunity there and I, I've, I did some good work there and I've got quite a lot of business coming in that way. And, you know, the business went, when I started taking it seriously, you know, from zero to six figures in the first year and we're taking on staff and I've got a new studio being built and it's, you know, with contracted revenue, it's all doing the right stuff. So on the one hand, I wanted to work in small to medium businesses providing business growth strategies using digital marketing. So I don't just want to fix your website. I'm not interested in posting out for you on social media. I want to know how are we going to get more leads? How are we going to grow your business? How are we going to give you greater reach? How are we going to scale your business? How are we going to sell more product? And how we do that? Well, that's just the how. But what you need to know is you can. You can do a product launch successfully. You can create wait lists. You can do promotions. You can do local promotions. And you can use technology in ways that perhaps you haven't envisaged to do it. And I think I was saying to you earlier, I, I think when I talk to business owners, they treat social media like teenage children. It's like, it's unruly. We don't know what it's going to do next. It's faddy. Um, it, there's always a new one coming on. You know, it's a pain in the butt because you've got to, you've got to look after it. So you've got to post once a day or post once a week. You've got to blog and nothing comes of it. 
Whereas I think business owners should see social media as an incredible board of directors. It can teach them um, analytics. It can show them help grow sales. It can give you minimum viable markets. It can teach you um, PR and customer sat instantly. You can roll that back into your business and learn for, and pay as you go. And so by understanding what you can actually do, what's possible with digital marketing for business growth, that's what social proof media became and, and, and is. And so it's been very successful. We've got people in, in healthcare, SME, local businesses. And what I try and do is work with the business owners, not just the marketing team, and go, what are you trying to achieve and what are your problems? And, and you know, Frank, sometimes it's dead simple. Somebody used to get business because they were in the yellow pages mm -hmm. or they, they were known around town and then the world changed and people stopped getting yellow pages. And it's like, well, well I'll advertise because I'll, I'll, what will I do? I'll, I'll get a social media page. I'll get a Facebook page and nobody follows it. And when you put out a post, no one's interested. And so I talk to the people around that dichotomy and I try and get them to understand how social media will, will let them grow. Mm. Interesting name for a business. Social Proof Media. Yeah, well, Social Proof uh, came from uh, when I was in Manchester in the Mr. Deansgate days. I got in with the uh, pickup artist community and the most famous guy in the world is called Mystery. And the, uh, he, he, he called a thing called the Mystery Method, which was... Uh, became well-known in a book called The Game by Neil Strauss and became movies and all sorts. And it's kind of from the LA movement of getting supermodels to date you and all that kind of stuff. And social proof is the idea that you create um, a buzz around you when you go into a social sphere. You get people and um, friends and wingmen and uh, other girls to come around you to make it look like you're the life and soul of the party. And then if people see that when you're in a club, other people will copy and so the idea of social proof, and it's actually come out of a, a great book called um, Influence, is the, it's a psychological phenomenon where people copy other people. So uh, if you put canned laughter uh, on a TV show, other people start to laugh. You know, it's that phenomenon. And so what I wanted to be able to do was take that, that sort of phenomenon and apply that to businesses. How can we make it so your business seems the most popular in your sphere and there are technical ways that you can do that from simple stuff like reviews or content or, or advertising how do we make it so that when someone encounters your brand for the first time or your company they look at it and go geez these guys are the center of attention these guys are the only party in town and that's what i try and do and out of interest and you, you mentioned alluded this before as well as having social proof media which is my sme growth agency I've also started a new course, and that course is called A Social Proof Profile. And what I found was taking a lot of my experiences from Mr. Deansgate and working with business leaders, I put a course in place that helped people become the key person uh, in their sector when it comes to looking at them digitally. So what I found was a lot of people out there, let's say my friend Simon, who's just gone through the course now, he's a KPMG consultant. He is a He's a, a change management consultant. It's not very exciting. He's from the top four. And he, he produced a book and he went out on the internet and he said, hey, I'm a change management consultant. And no one was knocking his door down. And so what I was able to do with taking him through the process over a number of weeks and going through these exercises was to create profiles and hooks and compelling pieces of marketing and content that when you look for Simon now, you know exactly what he's about and you can understand his references and his social proofing. And we take that profile that we've built for him and we drive customers to him 
by using the best in digital marketing techniques. So from being just obscure and, and wanting to be known because he was credible, I work with him to make him famous online, to be seen and to drive, to have people queuing up coming to him rather than him knocking on doors trying to flog his goods. And so what I found is that having the digital marketing expertise, but working with my social proof profile, I can work with business owners and leaders. And this is really what I'm spending all my time doing now on helping people get more sales and, and be better known by leveraging digital marketing to make them, uh, make them heroes. Mm. Fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. We spoke um, off air about the way in which marketing and the world of marketing has not only changed, but how it may actually change again in the future. And I was um, saying to you that, you know, what we're having a conversation at Downtown and Business, which is considered as being quite smart in terms of the way we communicate with people digitally. Um, in uh, looking maybe at doing some more traditional methods of communication over the next 12 months or so. So, you know, sending a letter to people, for example, yeah. and all that sort of thing, you know, snail mail making a return. And actually when we've done that, we've done it on a couple of occasions over the past year. Um, we've found that the response to that has been really positive. So, somebody who's immersed themselves in this digital world, I'd be really interested to get your thoughts on that. So one of the things that I think is is important is what marketing does uh, or advertising does is it goes where the attention is, where people are hanging out and where they're viewing or, or experiencing things, and it disrupts that with a message. So in the old days, you used to go and get your post every day, and if there was another letter there you weren't expecting, you would open it. But over years, when the, the only thing in your post was direct mail or, 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 or response mail, then it would just get thrown straight into the bin. In the same way as in the open rates of email in the 90s were 80-90% open rates because you weren't getting any emails. It was a privilege to get an email. Now you get so many emails, the open rates can be 3 4 5%, or in your case, 30 because you've got good content. But you can still see how the attention or the interest is moving. And so... When you're doing disruptive things in marketing, like you're talking about, sometimes actually going backwards, going onto radio, putting a TV ad out, doing a direct mail, if, if the world has moved on, then that can be a really good way of disrupting their standard attention and them taking notice. And marketing and advertising is all about someone being disrupted, taking notice, notice then piquing their interest, and then taking them on a journey. Now, so the positive is you can do that with, something like a traditional mail, or as I said, I have a friend that sent out mugs and pens, you know, to his new client base because they've never had those before. It was much better than an email. But my concern would be, how do you take the user from disrupting their, in the, 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 the disrupting their attention to taking them on a journey where you can control that journey through a sales process and, and do more with it? And so it has to tie into what I would call a sales funnel that's not going to be a plug for my book on sales funnels, but we can come to that later. But but just to take that to the next point, I think it's always about how you disrupt attention and where the low-cost attention is. So, you know, as TV became the mass medium, then TV advertising got really expensive. But if you look at TV advertising now, it's actually quite inexpensive to reach a lot of people. So it's where can you disrupt attention for the lowest cost? Now, I've just come back from Texas. I was there two weeks ago. Great barbecue food, as you know. I was down in Austin. And I was at a conference 
which is really a new and emerging element around uh, the ecosystem around Facebook, which is chat marketing. So to sort of take a step back and look at the future for a minute, Facebook has had an incredible ride and it's really burst in the social media world to us. It's the one we're most familiar with, most people, though there are others. But obviously it's also had an incredible uh, cha- had incredible challenges. So the, the elections, how people could buy ads, how the, how Cambridge Analytica could profile people without their knowledge and understand who was going to vote in what region and influence them through advertising or, or even worse, fake news and, 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 and different elements. And so there's been a real challenge to Facebook and social media. And what that's meant is there's been a challenge to us as marketeers and advertisers. So one of the challenges I had with Mad About Manchester is just at the moment where I was deciding which way to go. My videos, which were previously getting thousands and thousands of views in the first few days, were suddenly getting three views or four views. And the same happened with Unilad. And and a lot of these um local news sources were just dying because Facebook changed the algorithm in the wake of the Cambridge Analytica scandal and said, it could be fake news, therefore let's kill it. Mm. And so basically posting on what I would call organic posting, which was a lot of businesses were using to push out blogs and messages, pretty much overnight died a death um, last year, or maybe even the year before. And so what Facebook has to do is reinvent itself now to say, well, okay, And they talk about the difference between a market space and a lounge. And I think this is where it's going to be relevant to you and to your businesses. They say Facebook newsfeed is like a marketplace, like the center of town, like St. John's Square, whatever it might be. Everybody comes in. Everyone's trying to flog you something. Your your mate's over there. Someone you don't like is over there. And it's just hustle and bustle of news, which has become less and less relevant. That's what happens when you jump on Facebook now. And what they're trying to do from the very top down is move you into private lounges, So this is where things like WhatsApp, chat, direct messaging, closed communities with encrypted private messaging are where people are hanging out. And if you look at young people now, they're not on Facebook. They're moving into TikTok. They're moving into Instagram. They're moving into Messenger and WhatsApp. And so this conference that I was at was really looking at how private, personalized marketing will be the new future because our social media is going to stop being the marketplace where everyone's shouting the loudest and it's going to become more and more smaller group communities. So for me, a huge opportunity moving forward. Well, how be do you, someone, someone like downtown or how does a business, how do you take it from just people on an email list and how do you bring them into an online community that's private and a safe place to chat and share ideas and that's where I think the social media networks and marketing are moving into individualized, secure um, groups for meetings. Okay, that's, that, that makes sense. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll keep an eye on that. And we'll get you to one of our future events to talk about some of this stuff because it is, uh, I think, something that businesses need to be aware of and more importantly, take advantage of because these things have been a force for good, mostly. Yes. Now, again, I know that you're interested in the wider world and politics to an extent. I'm not suggesting that you're a political animal in the same way that I am, but you are um, certainly socially aware. Um, So you've mentioned Cambridge Analytics. Um, We talked a little about Facebook's influence in terms of the news. Um, Any concerns about 
where that's taking us? Or do you think actually there will be a correction going forward and people will all of a sudden start to wake up to the fact that actually I need to start getting my news from more credible sources that have got a reputation and have got some professionals around it that produce this sort of content? That's a big question, isn't it? Um, There's no doubt that social media has impacted politics and news in a way that was unimaginable. And, you know, even John Humphreys, uh, I think he had his last Radio 4 show on today, just last week, wasn't it? And, And he was concerned that... Politics were not make, uh, politicians were not making themselves accountable to aggressive questioning anymore because they would bypass it and go directly to Twitter or you know, Downing Street have just done the same thing with Johnson to try and avoid confrontational questioning, which you could argue was in the public domain and is an important part of our democracy and free speech. However, I do think that a lot of that has just become aggressive. It's turned people off you know so you know i love listening to the day program but not everybody does question time might be great but when you hear politicians and presenters arguing and pressing for points and trying to make headlines i think that's just been done it's not robin day anymore it's kind of like it's it's had its day and so social media was an obvious way that that would start to change and you know boris has tried to do that and trump has has definitely given Twitter a, 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 a rebirth. And so I think there's a, there's a couple of things to answer. One is we Facebook and these guys are working on accreditation for, for, for news sources, and we've seen the danger of negative propaganda. I mean, what, whatever the Russians did for the Trump election and certainly whatever they may have done around the Corbyn boom and the, and the Brexit elements, we, we probably will never know. But no doubt that fake news stories do influence certain people's minds and it needs to be weighted. And I think the way they'll do that is by subtle changes to the networks. I don't think they'll change human behaviour. We'll still jump on our phones. We'll still want the easiest way of consuming data the best. We will want that. But what I think you'll start to see is rating and ranking and blue ticks like you see from celebrities happening on news sources and an attempt to try and kill fake news. The the other thing that becomes very worrying about the social media and news is the echo chamber effect, that if you're a right-wing uh, uh, persuasion, then you stop listening to news sources that are overtly left and you unfollow people and soon you're in an echo chamber of people just polarising you with the same viewpoint and so healthy debate starts to disappear. So... We're in this interesting time, Frank, and I think there is an answer to this, going back to what I had earlier, where confrontational broadcasters talking to politicians, I think, has had its day. It will still continue, but it's had its day. Social media is where people are hanging out and the interaction that people can have. I mean, one of the things you can say about Trump, but when he was on his rise before he was into politics, he understood what Twitter would do and what it gave him was real-time population sentiment And he could sort of test stuff out and see whether it was hitting or losing. And that's what a popularist guy can do. But he's getting real-time feedback because of Twitter. And you've got to think that's, and that's not great when you're creating policy (laughs) or or being a diplomat, but it's pretty smart if you're being populist and you want to try and get the crowd over. So for me, there's going to be emergence of these things. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier about the Facebook strategy, where I think it's going to go 
is there will be proven news sources, but the interaction that social media gives us with politicians and holding account will increase. And so we'll start to see more chat-based, more interactive-based um, elements. At the moment, social media is still very much a broadcast medium. You go on, you get a thing, and some people comment underneath. But with the rise of things like Facebook Live and some of the other technology, it's starting to become a two-way conversation. And I feel that even though we're in a parliamentary democracy, I still believe that being able to have um, citizens communicate with their parliamentary representatives, don't get me wrong, but also in a more open way and an interactive way, I think is going to be much more of the future. Okay. Um, you've wrote a book. I did. <laughs> right. So, again, um, I've now probably met half a dozen people who 10 years ago wouldn't have even dreamt of writing a book, just wasn't on their sort of bucket list, wasn't on the to-do list. It was like, well, yeah, people write books. Yeah. I'm not an author. I'm just going to do whatever I do. Yeah. Um, so what was the motivation? Um, the same as Take Me Out. It was absolutely, how do I stand out from the crowd? I know if I write a book on my chosen subject, which in this instance, this is the book Beyond PPC, Groundbreaking Digital Marketing Strategies for Lead Generation, when pay-per-click fails. The reason for that was not because I had some burning thing to get off my chest. That's the next book. Um, this was very much to see, to become an author, to give myself, myself some social proof, to be able to go onto the speaking circuit again and to say, I'm the author of the best-selling book, etc. But at the time, I didn't know it was going to be best-selling. So just to sort of talk through that process, I was on a yacht in Turkey in a wedding, a fabulous wedding last year, and uh, in fact, I was because of, I actually came out of retirement and I actually married these couple. I actually officiated the whole service and came back to the light. Um, and it was fabulous. And um, I was on the board with a guy who's known as the, self, the self-published millionaire. And he's written a book on it. And he's got over 200 books that he, he's published himself on Amazon. He makes millions every year on passive income from these books. And he was talking to me about book publishing. And I said, well, I want to publish a book. Roll on a few months. And basically, I went through a process of how to put a book together, how to get the message across. I'm dyslexic, so I didn't want to sit down and write it. I'm not an author. So I, I just literally recorded into a microphone. Uh, he got a ghostwriter. He transcribed it. He edited it for me. And we published it on Amazon. And I thought, well, that's good. I've got a book. And it it was only two days in front of a microphone. That's great. Lots of thinking before then, but two days in front of a microphone. What I wasn't expecting, Frank, was I became a number one bestseller in Germany, in the UK. And I th did I hit, was it Australia or France? And then like in, in all other countries, and it's still selling now. So if I'd have known that, I'd have tried harder. <laughs> I'd have written a bigger book. But here's your copy anyway, Beyond PPC, as you can see. But basically what it showed me, and, and there's a the sort of method to my madness here, is working with uh, Joseph, uh, the self-published millionaire, he's now come on board with my team uh, to do the social proof profile. So one of the things we're doing is we like to call it, we're taking the invisible CEO, and like you said, you've, you've heard about this being done, and we're putting them through a program which raises their digital profile, which helps them dominate Google. So if anyone searches for your name, you dom dominate the first two pages. We work with them to author a book, if that's the relevant thing to do, or a white paper. 
We then um, build landing pages and websites around their core messaging. And then we teach them strategies how to drive people to there and to build their own fan base. So basically, learning from what I did with Mr. Deansgate and the, and the influencer marketing, working with a fantastic author that's done over 200 books, and then bringing the best of what I've learned through digital marketing technology, we've created this course where people can go from being invisible CEO to a hero CEO through the process of a social proof process, which is basically this course that we've developed. Incredible. It's good. Yeah, and you come out, so you come out dominating Google with your own book and, and an incredible profile and followers with many more followers. And we're not hacking this. We're doing all the right stuff to get you there. And what, what I found as, I, as when I was in Manchester, it's the same thing. When you become the key person of influence, to use Dan Priestley's phrase, in a sector, in a micro sector, well, then you start to get this incredible network effect and benefit. So I had a micro sector. It was the city centre of Manchester. And for eight years, I was the man about town that was doing reviews or, to, or doing property shows or all the different things I was doing. And the unseen benefits more than revenue were what was amazing. The invites, the, the nominations. Could I do an awards dinner? You know, would I come on TV? Would I go on radio? That's what happens when you're the key person in a sector. And, and as I said to you earlier, my inbox every day was like, oh, Nick, could you get us a table at the end? Could you get us on the VIP list? Oh, Nick, we've got a friend. Can you get us a hotel room? And so all of that was happening because of my influence in Manchester. And what we're now doing is taking that to people in their sector. So if you're a plumber or if you're a change consultant or if you're uh, another one that's been through recently, she's um, Amanda, she's an incredible physical trainer, but she wants to focus on CEOs, women CEOs that are doing over 35,000, you know, they're up 35,000 miles that are always in um, airplanes and hotel rooms, but want to keep fit. So she's developed a program for the CEO at 35,000 feet. And what we're doing with her is taking her through this program so that she stands out in an incredibly, incredibly busy market of personal trainers and health. And she, uh, and she understands her niche and she's big in that niche. And therefore she can get the benefits that happen when you're a key person, as you well know, uh, in your sector and that's what we're building for for ceos and business leaders okay sounds like a great business it's good fun and yeah fun for sure but i think you know what's interesting listening to to, to your business journey is that you know you clearly as a pastor would have been engaged with lots of people and been supporting those people as individuals probably supporting them through their own life journeys um, and then, as you say, you fell out of love with the church for a time. Seems to me that you've then said, right, it's it's my time now, right? It's the Nick Maguire show for a few years. Yep. And you went through that. Yep. But isn't it funny the way you're instinctively now going back to a situation where you're helping people again? It is. And um, it's, it's an interesting and insightful part. It's also, I think... We talked earlier about the, the, the midlife crisis and that kind of 40 period. Though I'm still 46. I might just add, I started my crisis early. Um, oh, my blossoming. Is that the most important thing, my girlfriend says this to me all, all the time, is just be you. And I struggled with that because I didn't know who the hell I was. Mm. I could be this thing if I was in a group of professionals. I could be this thing if I was a group of people partying. I could be very adaptable to whichever social situation I was in to the point that I didn't know who I was. And so now I'm finding or I've found my own voice and who I am. And it's very much around, I do think I don't just want to be a digital marketing agency. I do want to make people successful. And I think the lack of knowledge around what's possible with digital marketing 
is precluding people from business owners to small businesses from getting the success they need through through a lot of agencies just trying to take cash off them to handle tech, when actually what people need is a formula and, and, and a strategy for how to grow online and use those tools and build their own personal brands too. And in that process, I found myself when I'm doing these, we do a Skype call every Sunday night for the people that are on the course and they come on and we do a, sorry, it's a Zoom thing. We get all our different videos up and I'm, and I'm basically counseling and coaching people as we go through this process and helping them overcome hurdles and self-confidence issues. So there is a sort of personal motivation around it. And then to, to, to eat my own dog food, as they used to say in the tech sector, what I've also done is I've just in the process of finishing off a studio, just like you've got here in, in Liverpool. Uh, we're over in Southport now. And I've got a number of staff that have just taken on a new member of staff to work with me. And my aim is to start to produce content again, which I've not done for a couple of years since Mad About Manchester, the podcast, the videos, the training, and actually start pushing out a lot of this stuff for free. And, you know, if, for instance, you know, we, I've got a couple of great solutions for estate agents and local, local coffee shops and restaurants on data capture, on upselling and automating that. And I could probably flog that for 50 quid a month or 500 quid here and there. But actually I think by taking the lead and actually showing people how to do that. And then my service business and revenue will come from those that don't have the time or the inclination to do it, but they will trust me because I've shown them how the solution is there. And I think for me, this new economy is much more around establishing yourself with credibility through assets. And those assets are content assets that live online, that show your competency, show people what you're doing. And that drives people back to you. And that's one of the things that I'm training my social proof people to go through and I'm doing for myself. And in that journey, Frank, as you alluded to, you find yourself. And I find myself that I want to be a communicator. I want to give people um, passion and vision about their businesses. And I want to help people um, stand out online. And I think that's a coaching program. That's an investment program. And it feels a bit like a social proof preacher. <laughs> I may have gone full circle. <laughs> and I think, you know, the other observation I'd make about you as a personality is clearly the things that you've been involved in, um, you're passionate about. Um, you don't take yourself too seriously. And I think that's always very important for people who at whatever level are in the public eye, you know, and that's whether you're an A-lister or a Z-lister mm -hmm. and everything in between. If, if you go to bed at night worrying about what your hair's going to look like in the morning, I know people think I do that. I don't. Um, but, you know, you've got to be able to laugh at yourself, haven't you? You've got to be able to have a sense of humour and actually treat what you do with a degree of scepticism yourself and, and question sometimes, well, what is that all about? The final point I make, so passionate, definitely. I think supporting people, you enjoy that. And I think you get a sense of fulfillment out of that. Um, but the other thing that is clear is that you've got to be doing something that you enjoy and have fun doing. And for me, Nick, I say this a lot when people ask me, you know, about setting up business and, and what should I do and so on. And my one piece of advice to people is always, you've got to set up a business that you enjoy doing. Yeah. Because it doesn't matter what the business is, you're going to have peaks, yeah. but you're going to have troughs. Yeah. And it's when those troughs hit, when those bumps in the road 
come about on your journey. You've got to be able to look yourself in the mirror, look at your business and think, well, I bloody love doing that. So actually we'll get over it. You still having fun doing what you do now? I do. And I think I, I came to learn that the default position for an entrepreneur is failure. And you've got to know that. Not necessarily just in the business may fail, but in the new ideas, the new products, the staff hires that you do, the financial decisions you make, the default position is failure. And like you've rightly and eloquently said there, unless you're in a position emotionally and personally that you think, well, my life, you know, I don't know when I'm going to die, but if I'm going to do something with my life, I better bloody well enjoy it. That's why I had to leave corporate world. I just could not do another report for somebody above me who I had no respect for for a, a data report that was just useless that nobody was going to look at. And my life was just ebbing away from me. And so now I am living life on my own terms. I think the other big thing is um, when you have a, uh, when you fall down a hierarchy, a social hierarchy, it becomes quite crushing. And so from my age of 30, you know, million pounds, living on Royal Birkdale, job at Cisco, share options, married man, great family, church pastor, from all of that to be crashing down in different ways from that social status in, and, and, and having to sort of pick myself up again. There are certain things that I'm not chasing and that's helped free me up. So I'm not chasing the cash. And, you know, who wants to be poor? Nobody. Do I want to be rich? You, or you want money follows success. But right now I would rather take success and fulfillment, but not on the breadline, success and fulfillment moving forward than I would buying the next car or, or, or buying the next house or going on the next holiday because I've done so many of those things and they don't fulfill you. It's true. And so now what that, that's helped me do as a business entrepreneur is reinvest it all back into the business. So I can take on more staff. Why? Because I'm not spending a fortune on me. And I think that helps by being satisfied with yourself. I'm in a loving relationship. I don't need to prove myself to anybody anymore. And so that means I can focus and invest on my business. And, and like you've rightly said, you've got to do something you're passionate about and love. I mean, how can you have done you 16 years today, Frank, when we record this, <laughs> 16 years you've done this and you've, you've gone, you, you know, you've expanded all across the country now. That's pretty tough gig. I know you, I, I know I've seen, I've seen you on good days and bad days. You've met a load of good people. You've had heartbreaks and successes. And it's like, you've got to be passionate about it, haven't you? Absolutely. It's the only way. Yeah. And so I really am passionate about, I'm passionate about my little team that I'm building. Uh, and do you know what, Frank, there's no reason why I can't be world conquering with this stuff. Mm -hmm. There's no reason at all. Age doesn't preclude you. Um, just being a lazy bugger precludes you, I think. You know, you can go for it and there's no there's no cap to where this could go. Same same with you and your business. And, um, and I think now that I have that, it's also hard for anybody to take anything from me or for me to ruin it myself. I'm doing it because the journey, honestly, is constantly exciting. And yeah, we're making money. Um, and, but rather than spending that, I'm putting that back into the business and that feels good. Um, final point. Yes. Question. Um, so you've had your nights out, you've had your VIP lists. Um, you're a social animal. Mm -hmm. Um, you're not now Mr. Party time. <laughs> How do you spend your free time these days? That's really good. My free time these days. So I, I have a, a loving relationship 
and I've, I've moved back to Southport to be closer to my family, uh, which is where I originally came from. So that that's nice. And that's, you know, the, on Sunday, I'm out with my mum and dad and my daughters and, we're, you know, having a meal. So I think I've come to appreciate that matters a lot more than perhaps when it's just happening to you. And so um, I spend time with my girlfriend. We, we, we just, um, we go on, we just do whatever we want. Quite frankly, we're looking at trying to get a camper van and travel Europe and we'll do some crazy stuff. But a lot of my free time right now, this is going to sound so boring. A lot of my free time is spent reading books on the business. I watch YouTube videos around the subjects that I'm passionate about. And I would say probably 80 to 90% of what I do is reinvesting back into me right now in those elements. I've gone through the self-help. I've gone through the, you should do it. Now I'm in the just do it phase. And it's about building competency. So without sounding too dull or boring, my free time is thinking about how I move the business forward and, and how I can invest in that. And I've got energy for that. I should say go to the gym, but you know, I just... It's one of those, isn't it? You do, <laughs> you do and then you just, you don't. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm cooking. I'm, I, I was a vegan in January. I did veganuary. And so I'm, I'm sort of, you know, I've, you know, I stopped drinking, uh, you know, I can have a occasional glass of wine now. And I've just kind of got really boring, but I feel really good about it. And it's funny when you start watering the plants that you want to grow, they start to grow and the weeds tend to die. And, you know, my business is blooming. You know, I'm employing more people. We're putting up, we're, I'm excited about the content we're going to be putting out on socialproof.media um, and, and all that kind of stuff. And I'm excited about the next book. I am writing another one. This time it is on the social proof process on how, but it, interestingly, rather than just how to become known or an influencer or get followers or leads online, I'm actually tying that into a much more around the social proof empire. And it's like, how do you build something that you actually care about? How do you live a life that you're actually proud of? And how can you take uh, your learnings and your experiences and make them work for others? And that's kind of where I'm, where I'm at. Okay. Well, that's a great note to end on. <laughs> and uh, the absolutely not boring Nick Maguire. Thanks for having a frank conversation with us today. My pleasure. And congratulations on your 16th birthday. Thanks, mate. Cheers.